You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm so happy to be here with you all. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, my name is Tatiana, and I am a worship teaching pastor here at our Birmingham campus, and I'm so grateful, believe it or not, to be in the gym here with you all this morning, and those of you watching us online. Like Justin said, we had the most incredible group of people setting up and making this possible yesterday and the week before, and I just left blown away and grateful for the ways that all of you serve at this church, that is what makes it possible for us to be here in the gym when the school is having their play. So thank you. If you serve here, thank you so much. We are really grateful. But today we are going to be talking about prayer. And I think that prayer can be a subject that if you don't feel like you are personally good at prayer, you might have similar feelings to finding out that we're talking about prayer today. Like you might, when you go to the dentist, and they ask you when the last time you flossed was. And you know it was six months ago, and your dentist was there with you when that happened. (laughs) So I thought we could start from a place of honesty with one another today. We're in the gym together, so we're sitting a little closer together. The room is a little bit brighter, so I think this environment lends itself to a little bit of authenticity. So we're going to play a little game together. You do not have to participate if you don't want to, but it's really low stakes. It's just to raise your hand or don't raise your hand. So if you have ever prayed for a parking spot, raise your hand. I'm shocked it's not everybody. If you've ever prayed for good weather on your vacation or another special day, raise your hand. Yes. If you've ever prayed for the Lions to win, raise your hand. (laughs) Okay, if you've ever prayed for your kids' sports team to win, raise your hand. Aw, it's sweet, it's sweet. If you've ever said, I'll pray about it, as code for no when someone asks you to volunteer in some way, raise your hand. And lastly, if you've ever prayed God would give you the right answers on a test you did not study for, raise your hand. Amazing. I have done all of those that were not sports related. I have not prayed for the Lions to win. But I love that, that we can just start in a little bit of a place of honesty with one another today. Because many of us, if we're honest, I think have a little bit of baggage around prayer. Maybe to you, prayer feels superficial, like a wish list that we present to God. Or maybe it feels hopeless because you've prayed for something and God did not come through like you asked or hoped that he would. Or maybe prayer honestly just feels boring to you and your mind wanders when you pray. And maybe that makes you feel guilty or inferior in some way. I think our world itself even has baggage around empty prayers that haven't led to action. Because these prayers appear insincere when we say, God, can you fix this? But then we don't offer ourselves to God's way of healing, justice, restoration for the very thing we are praying for. Because prayer with a closed off heart doesn't lead to transformation. And then on the other hand, there's some of us in here who love to pray. We love to pray and we've experienced connection with God through prayers. And we've experienced God answering our prayers in real, tangible, hopeful ways. 
So wherever you are at in your faith or prayer journey, I do believe most of us in this room can probably attest to praying in some form. Reaching out to something beyond ourselves, something greater than ourselves for help in a time of need. I think you could say one of the most human things that we do is to pray, to direct our hope at something greater than ourselves. And like Justin said, as a church this fall, we've been focusing on what it means for us to, above all, know the one, Jesus, and see him as he is as we spend the entire year in the Gospel of Luke. In the past several weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to boldly approach God, to bring him our small things, bring our pain to him. And today, we're going to be talking about how he is a God we can bring our prayers to. And I don't think God is surprised that we find prayer complex. The Apostle Paul even said that we don't know how to pray as we ought to or what to pray for, so the Holy Spirit helps us. He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words to express. And I think this should bring us some sense of relief that God is actually saying, you don't have to have this all figured out. I don't expect you to, and I'm going to help you instead. Jesus taught his disciples what prayer should look like. He modeled it in his own life, often withdrawing to pray, and he warned against prayers with empty words about praying in order to be noticed by others or to put your spirituality on display. And Jesus told many parables about what God's posture towards us is like when we pray. Jesus told a parable about how God is not like an impatient judge bothered by someone's request for justice, but even like that judge is eventually going to be giving in and give the person what they are asking for. We can look at that and say, wow, how much more so? How much more so is the God who loves us going to hear us and quickly respond to our cries for help? And then Jesus talks about how even a friend who gets bothered and woken up in the middle of the night by their friend asking for help is going to eventually get up and help their friend. How much more so is the God who loves us going to respond and listen and answer our prayers, not out of apathy or indifference or because he's bothered and wants us to leave him alone, but because he loves us. Because he cares for us. Even in these circumstances, Jesus is saying, a response is given. So how much more so can we look at that and be assured that the God who loves us does hear our prayers? When Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, this was during a time that many other rabbis taught prayers for their disciples to repeat that served kind of like a creed does now. This is who our teacher is. This is what we believe and what we value. So that means that this prayer would not only serve as a mark of their identity as followers of Jesus, but would be a prayer that their lives would be formed by. An author and friend of mine, John Ortberg, said, God is not interested in something called your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. God's not interested in something called our prayer life. He's interested in our life. Jesus was not simply teaching his disciples how to pray, but how to live. So if we pray this way Jesus taught, we actually have to be prepared to live this way too. Church history has named this prayer the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, and there's three different iterations of it. One in Matthew that is most familiar, one in the Didache that looks a lot like Matthew's, and the Didache was an early church manual of Jesus' teachings, and then there's one in Luke that we're going to be in today. 
And Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer is shorter than Matthew's. So some believe that maybe Jesus taught this prayer multiple times. Now, if you've read the book Smart Brevity, which is a book that basically the thesis of it says, use fewer words, say less, and that will be better, maybe you could consider that Luke had an early copy of Smart Brevity and decided that Jesus needed a little bit of that on his prayer. Fun fact, all of the teaching pastors at Kensington were asked to read Smart Brevity. I don't know why, right, Justin? No idea why. But another example that Jesus gave us, teaching us how to pray, is just a few chapters later, where he teaches on the significance and the posture in which we approach God. And these two prayers, the Lord's Prayer in Luke and this parable of a Pharisee's prayer, just a few chapters later, when you look at them side by side, they actually contrast each other line by line. And this is so interesting because of how Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer is shorter than Matthew's, so it actually lets these two prayers line up like this. And I'm not saying that this is intentional and that this is what Luke was trying to do, but it is really intriguing because it shows us that there was great consistency in how Jesus taught us about prayer and how we are to approach God, what its purpose is, what prayer is supposed to look like. Prayer is meant to deepen our relationship with God and spiritually form us. The way we pray reveals what our relationship with God is like and what our perception of God is like. So this morning we're going to look at these two prayers side by side and see how they line up and how they contrast each other and consider what Jesus taught us about how we're to approach God with our prayers. So we're going to begin with the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray, Father. And we're going to stop with that first word right there. And now the Pharisees' prayer, just seven chapters later. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God. We're going to stop with his first word there, too. The setting of both of these prayers is significant. Jesus, in one, is approached by his disciples who have been observing the closeness that he has with the Father in his own prayer life, and they request that he teach them to pray like he does. Like we just mentioned, prayers served as creeds of what you believed, how you were to live out your values. So this request was also a surrender to the ways of Jesus. Because to pray like him would mean to live like him, to be marked by being his disciple. How you prayed and how you lived were not separable. Then in Luke 18, Jesus is telling this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus' disciples are looking up for guidance, and this audience was looking down, perceiving themselves as more righteous than everybody else. And Jesus begins by teaching his disciples to pray from a profoundly personal, close, and trusting posture with God. Before presenting their needs to God in prayer, they're to remind themselves first and find comfort in who they are approaching. God is Father. God is Father. A theologian, Reverend Dr. Justo Gonzalez, said this, 
Calling God Father was particularly important for what it says about the relationship between God and believers. It speaks of a personal God who relates to us as persons. In many modern languages other than English, our father and our mother are taken together and called our fathers. References to God as father may also be understood as references to God as parent. Unfortunately, in English, the word parent is impersonal and doesn't usually emphasize the love and care of a mother or father. Later, Gonzalez also mentions that another translation could also simply be loving parent. Because Jesus isn't saying that God is only to be related to as a father. There are many times in scripture where God is described as a mother. Saying as a mother comforts her child, so God also longs to comfort us. However, the reality is, not all of us here know tangibly the earthly love of an earthly mother or father. And the reality is we have a God who is willing to stand in that gap for us, giving us the love, comfort, and care, and unconditional love that we needed. God is willing to step in where we didn't experience that and give that to us. So regardless of if you feel like you are personally able to visualize and relate to God as a loving parent, Jesus' ultimate invitation here is that we would approach God with familiarity that we would approach God with familiarity, not from a distance. And the Pharisees' prayer begins differently. And this is what first struck me as I was looking at these prayers side by side, is that he begins simply with God. And my first reaction was, well, it's not wrong to address God as God. Maybe it's even more reverent than Father, but there is a difference in approach here. The word used for God is theos which is possibly the most impersonal use of God that he could have used. It's a really common word for God that could have also been used to refer to false gods, other gods, even humans, depending on the context. And this word is used hundreds of times throughout scripture to refer to God. So truly, there's nothing wrong with this address. But compared to Father, there's a little specificity little relationship, little closeness to God represented here. Jesus teaches us instead a prayer that draws us into relationship, that we don't have to approach God from a distance. So first, Jesus models a prayer approached from closeness rather than distance. Next, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. To pray that God's name would be kept holy would imply more than simply the name of God. In this time, a name was inseparable from the person to whom it belonged. There was a sacredness to it. And the word anoma used here for name referred to the revelation of the character of the person, what distinguished them from others. So Jesus teaches us that after approaching God relationally and calling him Father, we're to remind ourselves what God is like. And as a response to what God is like, his kingdom is what we ask for and give ourselves to. We remind ourselves that God is set apart in his love, kindness, goodness, justice, holiness. That God is the loving parent who listens, responds, and cares for us when we reach out and approach him in prayer. But the reality also is, broken people like you and me claim the name of God, of Jesus, every single day. And we sometimes misrepresent the character of Jesus, too, when we do that. 
People who interact with me will not always experience me as patient, as kind, as loving, inclusive, non-judgmental, merciful, and forgiving. Like the God that I'm claiming who speaks up on behalf of the oppressed, who gives himself away to protect and love the vulnerable. So when we pray that Jesus' name be kept holy, we're also asking that that would be true in our lives and our character too. Because to pray right after, may your kingdom come, implies that our kingdoms must go to make room for God's. And then in contrast, the Pharisee in chapter 18 prayed this, I thank you that I am not like other people. In contrast to the Lord's Prayer reminding ourselves of God's character, this Pharisee is telling God what he is like. And it's interesting, the past several months, I've been reading a lot of these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees. And God has actually been changing my heart's posture towards them. For a long time, I saw them as simply the villains of the story who didn't get it. If only they were less judgmental, less arrogant, more open, a little more like me, right? (laughs) But God has been teaching me compassion for these religious leaders. He's been teaching me to empathize with the pressure they were under to perform, to prove themselves, to keep up appearances, and honestly can't most of us us relate to that. Perhaps, rather than Jesus creating a caricature here to mock a Pharisee's prayer in this parable, there's something deeper, too, to recognize here about how Jesus was inviting them into closer connection with God, too. Saying, hey, you actually don't have to prove yourself when you come to God in prayer. You don't have to prove yourself and how it must feel exhausting feeling like you do. And I wonder if the Pharisee in this parable felt that he had to remind himself that he was set apart from others, just like he believed God to be holy and set apart, to convince himself he was worthy when Jesus is saying, no, there's an open invitation. It's Father. There's an open invitation. Henry Nowen, when talking about prayer, said, God's love does not require any explanations about why we're returning. God is glad to see us home and wants to give us all we desire just for being home. Perhaps some of us here can relate to feeling guilty if we aren't praying often, aren't setting aside time to be with God, and that guilt can even prevent us from approaching God in prayer. It could even make us feel like we have to earn our way back into prayer and into relationship. But no matter how long we've been away or been distant, God is simply happy we've returned and always welcomes us back. So here Jesus teaches us to pray, reminding ourselves who God is rather than relying on who we are. And then Jesus models a prayer that is communal and attentive to the needs of others. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Give us, forgive us as we forgive. We're to approach God not just with our needs, but to pray for and care for the needs of those around us. And because prayers are meant to be lived out in a representation of who we pray to, we are not to pray that God would provide the bread we ourselves would not be willing to give. We're not to pray God would provide the bread we wouldn't be willing to give ourselves. And this is what makes this kind of prayer that Jesus taught vulnerable. If we truly give ourselves to it with an open heart, 
We're not to pray that the unsheltered person we walk by and see would be fed without offering a meal. We're not to pray that God would comfort our friend in grief without offering an ear to listen, to weep with those who weep. Prayer, yes, it does build our relationship with God on a personal level, but at the same time, as we get further and further into this prayer, we see what we're being called to do as followers of Jesus. This is deep spiritual formation, take up your cross and follow Jesus kind of stuff. And then after this, we acknowledge our own imperfections and our need for forgiveness and mercy, and that is vulnerable. That's even a scary thing to come face to face with our own brokenness and need for forgiveness, which is why we often avoid it and don't ask for it. And right after the Pharisee tells God that he's not like other people, he lifts off categories of who he's thankful that he's not like. He says robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, and we'll get to the tax collector story soon too. This Pharisee categorizes people separates himself from the types of people that he deems are worse than he is. And who would you put in that category, if you're honest? Is it Michigan State fans? <laughs> yeah? I don't, I don't know what I just said. I don't know the difference between green and blue. I just knew it would make Justin upset. <laughs> but really, who would you put in that category? Who do you find yourself thinking that you are superior to, morally, intellectually, spiritually? This Pharisee puts others down, emphasizing how bad they are to affirm how good he is. Trying to convince God he's good enough to remember, God, I'm not like that. I've worked so hard to be good, and do you see it? Are you proud of me? Do you believe me? And if I'm honest, this is where God grew compassion in me for this parabolic Pharisee. Because, wow, I can relate to this deep need or compulsion to prove that I'm good enough. I struggle with perfectionism, and I think perfectionism for me shows up in judgment, being harsh on myself or others, this feeling of inadequacy, of this never-ending bar of goodness that just keeps getting higher and higher and less attainable the more I try to reach it. And I don't just want to be perfect at the products that I produce, like the music I create, what I write, or what I say. I actually just want to be good at my core. And this comes from a fear that I'm not. I'm afraid of my own imperfection and that it somehow makes me unworthy of love and good things. And a couple of months ago, Timmy and I drove up north to Headlands International Dark Sky Park. It's right across from Mackinac City, and this is a park that is protected from light pollution, so when you go there, you see the stars so clearly. It's unbelievably beautiful. And I have a picture to show of what Timmy took. This was a picture he took of the stars. It was so gorgeous. And I took one, too, that we have next. Yeah, that was mine. <laughs> I know that mine was a little bit better, but feel free to encourage Timmy after service. Tell him he did his best. He did a really good job. But I'm there. I'm sitting under the stars, and I'm talking to God about this struggle of perfectionism that I have, that I've been processing with him lately. And there's a song by an artist called Sleeping at Last that I was listening to these words and looking up at more stars than my eyes could count. And this is what the song says. The list goes on forever of all the ways I could be better in my mind. As if I could earn God's favor given time or at least congratulations. 
I'm looking up at the closest thing to perfection that we have in this world, the beauty of the cosmos, where I could actually see a hint of the Milky Way galaxy right in front of me with my eyes. And tears are streaming down my face as I'm telling God, I feel inadequate. I want to be good enough, but the list of how I could be better never stops. I need your help. And I wish I could tell you in that moment that God stepped down and healed my perfectionism, but that would be dishonest. But under the stars, God met me with compassion and grace in a way that broke through a part of me that felt trapped, as if I had to earn God's favor. I truly experienced God weeping with me and telling me I had nothing to earn or prove, that he just loved me. The way the Pharisees lists off people that he's not like really appears judgmental on the surface. Like he's separating himself from people that are the worst in his mind. And this is what gives him the certainty that he's good enough to approach God. But I think there's also bitterness towards groups of people that the Pharisee struggles to love and keeps himself separate from. The prayer Jesus calls us to forgive us as we forgive both recognizes that we need forgiveness, we miss the mark, and releases others from the categories that we put them in. It's a surrender of our bitterness, our hatred, and asking God to help us live out mercy the way that he does. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that we can approach God with humility and receive his love, not because we've earned it, but because he loves us, because he loves us, we are worthy of it. Because he took on the cross in the ultimate demonstration of love and said, that was worth it. He said, that was worth it. This love is so transformative that it leads to our life change, that we would be forgivers of others, just like Jesus invites us into as we pray, forgive us as we forgive. When we're living from a place of assurance of the love we've received, we don't have to be afraid or ashamed to ask for our own forgiveness. Because we know our brokenness is not what defines us. The love we've received does and changes us so that we would love and extend mercy like we've experienced. And this isn't meant to oversimplify forgiving others, which often comes at great personal cost and struggle when we've been hurt. Even Jesus himself modeled how hard this can be when on the cross he asked the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him. Sometimes the pain is so deep, we need supernatural help, and we need to say, God, help me forgive. Forgive us as we forgive is a request coming from a posture of dependence and help, saying, I need forgiveness too, and that is framing why we forgive others. To live this part of the prayer out means that we would be people marked by mercy and forgiveness, humility, acknowledging when we've hurt one another and making every effort to make things right so that our relationships can be made whole again. So Jesus' prayer models oneness with others rather than separation from others. And then finally, Jesus teaches us to pray and lead us not into temptation. And some manuscripts after this say, deliver us from the evil one. This prayer concludes asking for help, deliverance, admitting our need and maintaining awareness that temptation does come and we're going to need God's guidance and presence and help there. 
And temptation here doesn't simply refer to when we're presented with a choice to do a good thing or a bad thing, a selfless or selfish choice, but the word piera refers to trials. And it comes from a verb that means to pierce. So this is also talking about the trials in our life that hurt us too. When we're in pain, we can rely on God. We end this prayer the way Jesus taught, with total dependence on God, remembering we began with Father. This is a God who invites us to lean on him. And then the Pharisee ends his prayer on a really interesting note. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He reminds God that he's got it all together. He's got life figured out. He does, is doing just fine in the spirituality department, actually. And then after this, he's silent. Because honestly, what's left to say after this? I kind of picture him in a stunned silence, like he actually is at a loss for words, and he doesn't know how to continue either. He doesn't know what to say. Jesus' prayer assures us that we don't have to approach God with it all figured out, with a list of spiritual accomplishments. These two prayers contrast at this point with a posture of asking for help versus I don't need help or even I can't ask Because aren't some of us afraid or ashamed to ask others or God for help when we need it? And there's another prayer in Luke 18 that Jesus describes in the same setting as the Pharisee's prayer. The story begins with this Pharisee who is described as standing off by himself, which religious leaders would do. They would stand alone as a sign of their ritual cleanness that expressed their devotion to God. They'd separate themselves from other people, and they wouldn't touch Gentiles, sick people, tax collectors. But Jesus says that off at a distance, there there is a tax collector there. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This simple, contrite prayer of the tax collector who stood at a distance feeling too much shame to stand closer, even look up to heaven, is beating his chest asking for mercy. And that is what is contrasted with the Pharisee's self-assured prayer, even as the Pharisee specifically thanks God that he's not like that guy. This expression, beat his breast, expresses deep anguish. The only other time that this phrase is used in the New Testament is also in Luke when Jesus is being crucified and the crowd who is there recognizes that he was innocent, that he was truly the Son of God, and it says that they leave beating their breasts. This is a sign of deep anguish, authentic repentance, a plea for God's mercy. And several weeks ago I mentioned that many theologians describe Luke's writings as the great reversal. Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor, invites the rich to give away their wealth, welcomes the sinner, challenges the religious to let go of their judgment. So by contrasting these two prayers, Jesus, in this great reversal, is saying, your devotion to God is not in your separateness from others, but in your proximity. That is what shows that you have the heart of God. The Pharisee who was taught that he was most righteous by who he would not touch. Jesus is instead saying it's not perfect prayers, perfect lives, or religiosity that justifies us and keeps us close to God. We pray for the daily bread and forgiveness of one another instead. 
We can approach God with a prayer this humble, this simple, as God have mercy on me, a sinner, and God will listen to us, lift us up. I love what Jesus said right after this that must have absolutely shocked his listeners. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How beautiful that the tax collector couldn't lift himself up off the ground or bear to look up to heaven. And Jesus is saying he doesn't have to stay there. When we come before God and our brokenness and humility, he's the one to lift our eyes up, to listen to us, to care for us. Jesus will meet us there as we're looking down to the ground with comfort, mercy, and invitation into a fuller relationship with a God who loves us. Lifting our eyes up so that we know the invitation to approach God in prayer is not conditional. There's nothing we have to earn or prove we are simply welcomed as we are. So today, consider approaching God in prayer. The pressure is off with Jesus. He assures us that prayer is not about our performance. We don't have to list off our accomplishments to convince God or ourselves that we are worthy. We can simply say, Father, and already know that we have a place to belong. We're accepted. We're invited. And my hope, too, is that we would be a community known for the way that we live out our prayers for one another and our neighbors. That our prayers would not be empty promises, empty words, but lived out convictions reflecting the character of who we follow and have given our lives over to. Because God is not interested in something called our prayer life, something called our spiritual life. He's interested in our lives. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.